Alrighty, last Prim Law episode, and then I'm finally all caught up. The final defense that we're talking about today is necessity, which is the choice of evil, which is pretty much, which evil are you going to choose? We have three case of, cases of necessity. Let's just give an overview of what necessity is, and then we'll give those two other examples. So we have Nelson v. State stuck in the mud. What happened in this case is that in Alaska, a person was driving, he got stuck in the mud, and then they went and attempted to get unstuck, and to do so, they had borrowed, in quotation marks, some heavy equipment, and let's just say they failed in pulling them out and ultimately got the heavy equipment stuck as well. So how can you make the necessity defense? Well, there are three things that are required at least in this case. First, the illegal action was done to prevent a significant evil. So in this case, you could argue that the illegal action of taking the heavy-duty equipment was done to prevent the further damage of his truck. Second, there must have been no adequate alternatives, meaning in this case, you could quote-unquote argue that the only way of getting his truck unstuck, or rather getting to a safe place, would be to use this equipment, and there's no other opportunities. And third, the harm that is caused must not be disproportionate to the harm that is avoided. So, what you would argue here is that had things gone better, he got his truck not stolen anymore, return the property with no damage to that property. That is not what happened in this case. The reason why it didn't work in this case is because the illegal action that was taken was way disproportionate to the harm that would have been prevented. They were trying to prevent the truck from tipping, which would have just dinged the trunk, truck but ultimately, they got the property stuck. So first of all, they stole the property. Second of all, they got the property stuck. Third of all, they caused damage to that property from getting it stuck. The reason why we allow this necessity argument, too, is so that we can alleviate harms that parties could feel. And the reason for this is because if you use like a utilitarian approach, if you do a bad thing, to make a good thing happen, well then there's actually no harm that had occurred. You had balanced it out and actually you had created a societal good. That doesn't happen all the time. But we do need to look at the subjective analysis of this as well. We need to consider what the defendant would have thought at the time that, that he was acting, given the certain circumstances. And in this case, Yes, they were underneath duress, but they can't actually use the test anyways because it fails on all three points. The illegal action was done to prevent a minor evil, not a significant evil. There were adequate alternatives, meaning they could have gotten a ride into town, they could have called a tow company, they didn't need to take action into their own hands. 
And third, they actually damaged the property. And, the, and ultimately, they didn't avoid the harm anyways. So they fell on all three grounds. So yes, even though it's a subjective analysis, you do need to meet those three requirements. The MPC gives a four requirements. First is that the actor believes that it's necessary to avoid the evil. Yes, that is subjective, and that is the exact same thing as what we had just talked about. Second is that the harm sought to be avoided is greater than that sought to be prevented by the law, by the law that defines this offense. Third, so that's going to be your balance of harm that we had ended up doing as the last step in the last thing. Third is that there's no specific exceptions to necessity defense in the statute. And fourth is that there's no specific exception to necessity by legislative intent. So there can be exceptions in the statute and by legislative intent. And if there is no exceptions, then you can have the necessity defense. So that's an overview of what necessity is and how it works. Let's talk about how this applies in civil disobedience. And civil disobedience just is protesting. There are two kinds of civil disobedience. There's a direct and indirect. Indirect civil disobedience means that what you're doing violates a law that is not the object of the actual protest. So, for example, in this case, we have an indirect civil disobedience. The person went to the IRS to cause a little bit of issues at the IRS related to El Salvador tax policies. So they were not arrested for violating El Salvador and the tax policies. They were arrested for going and causing a dispute at the IRS office. Direct, on the other hand, is violating a law that is directly related to the protesting actions. An example of this would be Rosa Parks, for example, sitting on the bus, asked to move, it was against the law for her to be sitting where she was at on the bus, and she refused to move. So she was protesting the law by violating the law. And that is an example of direct civil disobedience. Indirect civil disobedience will never, or at least most often, should never be allowed to have a necessity claim. And there are reasons for that. It fails all the elements that are required for necessity. Actually, it fails three of the four requirements that are required for necessity. First, it fails the harm requirement because there's actually nothing wrong with a lawful policy. Second, it fails the causal relationship requirement because it's actually unlikely to solve the problem. Their protest in the IRS is unlikely to solve issues that are going on in El Salvador. And third, it fails the legal alternatives because there is a legal alternative. You go to Congress and you ask Congress to change the law or change the policy. And so there are legal alternatives and indirect is never going to apply. But how does this apply to civil, direct civil disobedience? Direct civil disobedience, a lot of the time, courts are going to find that necessity is not allowed. But there are times when the courts do find that necessity is allowed. 
Let's go through each of the steps just to see when it can be allowed. So what was the harm that you're trying to avoid? Well, there, there was a case, let, let's take the Rosa Parks example. There's nothing wrong with sitting at that spot on the bus and you're trying to prevent further dis discrimination. So you're trying to avoid harm. What about the prevent imminent harm? Well, the current harm is that people are segregated, at, at least in the Rosa Parks situation. People are segregated, and that harm is currently ongoing, and so you're trying to prevent that imminent harm because it's currently ongoing. What about the causal relationship? Well, sitting at that spot on the bus is directly related to that harm of discrimination, and by actually going against that, you could change that harm. So it's, there is a causal relationship. And what about legal alternatives? You could argue that it might not make it to Congress because at that time it's lawful to be desegregated, to be segregated. And so what you're doing would actually make an impact for change. There are counter arguments to each of these on both sides of the party, and that relates to all direct civil disobedience issues, and there's a reason why courts say, yes, this can be allowed. No, this can't be allowed. Finally, can necessity be used for murder? Can it be a defense to murder? Common law approach is going to say no, NPC approach is going to say possibly. Thing to note with NPC approach on this is that it's not adopted widely. Uh, the NPC approach, it, it, people don't like the NPC approach to this. If you remember from our discussions a while ago about legality, I believe is how long it was. We talked about Queen versus Dudley and Stevens. What happened here is that there was a shipwreck. They decided who to kill so that they could survive. Uh, and they did end up killing and did end up surviving. And then they got back and were convicted for murder. They could argue that they had to kill in order to survive, that there is no other way to survive. And so they try and use this necessity defense saying, I used this, did this evil to prevent this evil. This is going to go back to our discussion on retributive and utilitarian theories. And ultimately, this is going to be the trolley problem. They killed one person to save three. Trolley problem. In case you've never heard of it before, is there's a train going down the tracks. It's going to hit five people if it continues down the same track. Uh, workers are going to be oblivious. They're guaranteed to die. If you flip the switch, however, you can make the trolley change directions and go to one and hit one person instead of the five. And that one person is guaranteed to die. Do you kill the one person to save the five? 
Let's take another example. Five patients go to the doctor. They all need a certain organ, a certain different organ, in order to survive. A, a sixth patient goes to the doctor for a minor illness, but all his organs are healthy. Can the doctor kill this one person to harvest his organs to save the five? Sounds quite similar to the trolley problem, right? Well, these two hypotheticals, it's interesting because most people say different. I, I'll share my opinion at the end, but most people say different. Most people say that you should flip the switch on the trolley and you should not kill the person for the doctor. So in other words, flip the switch on the trolley, kill one person, save five. But the doctor approach, let the five die so that the one person can live. What's the difference? Well, and that's really what things are going to get into. The common law approach doesn't allow you to flip the switch. And it doesn't allow you to kill the five. Sorry. Yeah, it doesn't allow you to flip the switch, and it doesn't allow you to kill the one to save the five. The NPC approach actually says that it's fine to switch the, flip the switch, which ultimately means that it might be fine to kill the one to save the five. Out of necessity. What's my opinion? I don't flip the switch, and I don't kill the one. Um, the reason for that is because out of consistency, even though it seems really unfortunate to let the train go and kill the five instead of flipping it and killing only the one to save the five. It seems really unfortunate, but ultimately, out of consistency, I don't think it's right for the doctor to kill the one person to kill the five. Well, to save the five. What I'm trying to say with all of this is I prefer the common law approach saying if you were to do either of those things, you can be held criminally liable for the actions and necessity can't be used as a defense. And I disagree with the NPC approach on this issue. And that's going to be one of the rare times that you actually get an opinion out of me. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.